Uh, the due diligence process that we have is both quantitative and qualitative. And I'll tell you, one of the early mistakes I see people making is when they start to focus on mergers and acquisitions is they tend to pay too much attention to the P&L and the balance sheet. Well, that's critically important, and you you know it's, you have to understand the economic value of the company that you're about to have join or you're working to have join you. But you also have to understand the qualitative issues, and I, I think I can make a successful argument that the qualitative measures are more important. And what we look for is organizations that have demonstrated a track record, have a huge, great track record of high integrity, commitment to their internal and their external customers, agents, and employees as well as buyers, sellers, landlords, tenants. And when they have those two things, high integrity, a, a track record of high integrity decision-making and a commitment to their internal and external stakeholders and shareholders, then I know we're on the right track. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where your host, Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends, interviews the brightest minds in real estate. Each week, brokerage leaders, top agents, team leaders, and industry experts join Tracy to share their trends, their secrets to success, and the lessons they've learned navigating this ever-changing industry. Welcome to the Real Trending Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds in real estate about leadership, business growth, trends, and strategy. I'm your host, Tracy Velt, Editorial Director of Real Trends. And today, I'd like to welcome Rick Haas, President of United Real Estate. United is the eighth largest real estate firm by transaction sides, according to the 2022 Real Trends 500 brokerage rankings. So welcome, Rick. Good morning, Tracy. Glad to be here. I feel like we've been talking a lot lately because you've been doing a lot of um, M&A work, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So you've had some big news. You have a partnership with Pearson Smith Realty and then Me Home Realty, which is now United Real Estate Fortune. I know Pearson brought you a thousand new agents and um, Me Home or United Real Estate Fortune brought you into the New York City market. So tell me a little bit about your lessons learned through those uh, mergers. And then also you've been doing you've done quite a bit over the past couple of years. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's, uh, those are two of our most recent. Uh, I, I'll tell you that uh, whether it's um, Pearson Smith in the D.C. metro marketplace or, or entering Long Island, uh, one of the five boroughs, Queens, uh, their office being in Great Neck, uh, or Texas United, 800 agents down in Houston, it's been a very, very, very busy season for us in terms of growth. You know, we're, as a strategy, we pay attention to organic growth as well as uh, mergers and uh, acquisition opportunities, and and uh, we've been we've been diligent, and, and it's paid off. The the odd part, if you go back just about the 36 months, and we have 4,200 agents in in Atlanta, and 1,480 agents now in in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, or Orlando, or uh, Fort Lauderdale. You know, our our current and projected growth really is just, what, what everybody sees is just the tip of the iceberg. It's literally our flight pattern is so full. And I know people say that all the time, but our flight pattern is truly so full. We're, we're, um, ha- we're, good news is we're getting to be choiceful and we're paying attention to um, bringing on board those companies who have the, you know, that are just pure, the true gems in the real estate brokerage industry across the country. So it, we're, we're fortunate that we've, we've got the skill set on, on board our, our officer team is a very, very talented and has done a lot of a lot of merger and acquisition work. 
And at the same time, our organic growth numbers are coming up really, really well. So continuing to come up really, really well. So let's let's talk about that from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, you know, we have a lot of brokers listening to this who may be starting to get into M&A or struggling with finding the right companies. What, um, you know, what are some ways that you find the right culture fit, um, the right company? How much time do you spend determining that before bringing them into the United family? Uh, the due diligence process that we have is both quantitative and qualitative. And I'll tell you, one of the early mistakes I see people making is in, in when they start to focus on mergers and acquisitions is they tend to pay too much attention to the P&L and the balance sheet. While that's critically important and, you you know, it's table stakes that you have to get that right. You have to understand the economic value of the company that you're about to have join or you're working to have join you. But you also have to understand the qualitative issues. And I could make an argument. Um, I think I can make a successful argument that the qualitative measures are more important than the current status of the P&L or balance sheet. Um, what we look for is organizations that have demonstrated a track record, have a huge, great track record of high integrity, that they have a commitment to their internal and their external customers, that is um, agents and employees, as well as buyers, sellers, landlords, tenants. Um, and when they have those two things, high integrity, a, a track record of high integrity decision making and a commitment to their internal and external stakeholders and shareholders, then I know we're on the right track. And here's why. So many companies I see pay attention to the, the quantitative measures. And, uh, and when they get there, they realize that their companies aren't culturally on the same path. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, where they, they realize that there's too late that the current ownership has had a kind of a scarcity mentality in how they operated. And when that happens, agents, you know, that's where that's where you hear people talking about what percentage breakage do you factor in? Well, we literally factor in zero breakage because we have we have a, a long history of having just that. We Agents don't leave when we, we get involved. In fact, the growth rate post-transaction is so high um, that um, we can be a little bit more generous in the transaction structure and the overall valuation because we know we're going to lift we're going to lift that organization's performance. But if if or if we hear in the in the early conversations, I know if I hear this idea that uh, the brokerage ownership, the owner ownership of that brokerage is primarily concerned about what's in it for their agents and employees, then I know they probably had a long history of operating their company that way. And when they do operate that way, they've, they, they've developed so much goodwill and trust with their agents and employees, then we're able to, they're actually able to pass that goodwill and trust onto us through their own due diligence. Their agents believe them and they, the agents from a um, retention perspective are all in from, for the growth that's about to happen for them. So, it, I, again, it, it's, it's one of those soft-sounding issues, but it's truly not soft at all. Um, if we encounter, and we do this a lot, we, we talk to brokers who basically are, are focused on I, me, mine, what's in it for me. And when they have that kind of an attitude, then, then it ends up that uh, we, we usually don't do business with them. 
Okay. Um, you know, and I think that's a really a difficult thing for, for brokers. They see this company that they, they want to merge with or acquire and they get wrapped up in the idea of that company without, and, and the, you know, like you said, the P and L without, you know, just kind of thinking, oh, we'll figure out the rest later. And so a more strategic approach would be, like you said, to really to to be willing to walk away from companies that don't necessarily fit, even if they fit from a P&L perspective or a geographic. Yeah, I you know, it's a really hard time for brokers who, who might be running a business that was historically very successful. But as the industry has evolved and their business model has become less and less viable, um, it's a very hard time for them to be able to, you know, digest what do I need to do to uh, reinvent my brokerage so it's a contemporary brokerage. It's not something that's deeply rooted in the past from an operations perspective. I'll give you an example. Um, compensation plans, agent compensation plans, um, if if there's a, if you're a brokerage today that's still keeping 30, 40, even 50% in some cases for new agents, um, there are just too many options out there for agents to be able to sign on and have more of their gross commission income flowing to them. When a brokerage tries to hang on, and, and it's obvious why they need to hang on to that revenue, because they have such a such a big cost structure that they have to be able to have each one of those sales made by their agents drop more money to the top line and bottom line of their company. But if you hang on to that system too long and you don't have a transition plan to get somewhere else, then use over time, you become less effective at recruiting, less effective at retention, and your business is going the wrong way. Now, if you're a broker who have planned to leave that your company to your family members, your children, maybe now you're starting to wonder, what are you going to have left to be able to transfer to them? And, and what are you going to have to gift to them, uh, what's their inheritance going to be, and so I feel I feel tremendously for those for those for brokers in the, that situation. But if they connect with us and we're able to show them a different path, a different um, track to run on, and how to transition from what they what they are to what they need to be in the future, that's where we're having a lot of our success. Yeah, and I've I've almost seen um, this slight shift. I don't want to say that it's across the industry to um, basically using ancillary services to make up that gap, but it's almost brokerage is almost the secondary. It almost becomes an ancillary service to something else. Um, Again, this isn't, I haven't seen this across the board, but I have seen this mindset a little bit in, in some brokers that I've talked with. Um, have you seen that? What do you, you know, I think, I think it personally, the, when you, when you put brokerage as your ancillary service to something else, um, you know, that isn't the way to do business, but what is your opinion on right. that? Well, okay. So, you know, I, for the last two decades plus, I've dealt with, um, that, uh, you know, operating real estate brokerages, that also have mortgage title and insurance. And it became very popular over the last two decades for brokerages to say, well, I I lose money in my real estate company, but I make money in my mortgage and title, and that's really why I have them. Um, 
and think about the name, just what, the way you asked the question, you referred to them as ancillary or extra and on top of, but the core business by definition of your, even your choice of word is that it's extra. It's, um, it's not the core. When those com- when companies talk like what you, the way you just described it, they've actually, they've declared that it, the core business is mortgage and they're just have a go to market strategy that's, recruit agents that will deliver that business to them. So uh, we don't believe that. We believe that they are core businesses, all of them. And I'll give you an example. We're about to go to market with national partners on mortgage title, uh, both both entities. We've done some great groundwork. But first, what we needed to do was get scale so that at scale, meaning get scale of the real estate brokerage, because at scale, we don't have to over the, overburden the mortgage operation or the title operation. We don't have to overburden them with too high of expectations for a success rate or what people call capture rate. And because we, we're, we're doing it that way, we know that we'll get, if we get one out of 10 or uh, one and a half out of 10 buying or, or mortgage opportunities, our business, our mortgage business will be profitable. Well, the reason we can do that is we now have enough agents and enough transaction count. We'll close about 88,000, just over 88,000 transactions this year. When we open our mortgage and title operations, it does two things. Um, yes, it adds another revenue stream to the company and profit, um, another profit stream for the company. But more importantly, it preserves the relationships that all of our agents and all of our, our office operations have with the existing mortgage and title operations. And that's really important to do. So think about it this way. If our goal was two mortgage opportunities or two closing opportunities out of 10, if we had that as our goal, that still leaves eight out of 10 to go to the people who have been supporting our, our brokerage operations and our agents all along. So we don't have to overburden um, our mortgage and title operations with too high of expectations on capture rate. And that's been a very strategic path to those businesses. And they won't be ancillary. There'll be additional core businesses. But make no mistake about it, we're profitable. In, in we, we are profitable in the brokerage business, of course, and we will be profitable in all of our other lines of business. We won't sub-optimize one for the other. Yeah, I just I just think that that's interesting. Um, like I said, I haven't seen it across the board, but I have heard whispers of that. And um, just an interesting way. To, I think it's all about the way you look at it. And, um, you know, with with gross margins down, um, you know, margin compression is real in real estate. So there's some concern. And I guess I wanted to. Um, I think most of our audience knows your compensation structure, your model, but why don't you just go ahead and and tell them just to, for the people who don't know about United Real Estate. Our basic compensation model is a transaction fee. We don't charge a split of the gross commission. We charge a transaction fee, and there are two levels of um, of that structure. And then in addition to that, there's a small annual fee or monthly fee, however the agents want to pay for it. Most times it's it's a monthly fee, and and uh, but it's it's de minimis. It's very small, and agents, depending on their production, will keep anywhere from ninety five to ninety seven percent of their gross commission income. Um, the the real interesting part for me, though, is that not only do they are they able, and this is the part that most most people say, ah, oh, it's not possible. Well, it is possible, um, but 
in addition to the high retention of gross commission income, we have a proprietary technology platform that, and it's a workflow platform and a marketing platform that enables our agents to have the tools and, and services necessary to conduct their business um, without having to go out and contract with outside vendors. And you have seven different vendors that you're doing business with, and each one of those vendors has to take their 13 or 14 percent gross profit. And by the time you're done, you have kind of this rat's nest of technology that an agent has to master. And and um, and in the aggregate, it's very, very expensive. The kind of the genius behind what Dan and, and Dave and our, our officer team continues to do is our technology platform has uh, very low incremental cost. So you mentioned Pearson Smith. Pearson Smith will have more tools and services. Do They do have more tools and services today. And the great news for us is that it doesn't cannibalize our profitability because of the way we built it, not only the platform that it's on, but the um, fact that we are we built it ourselves and continue to reiterate it um, weekly. Um, because of that functionality, because of the way we built it, we have very low incremental cost to adding agents. And so our business is, um, is scalable. And it's scalable without ruining our ability to deliver our value proposition of high gross commission dollars retained by agents. And that's, again, you know, there are companies out there, I think we all, you know, we know who they are, but there are companies out there that try to amalgamate uh, technology providers uh, or, or maybe don't have a proprietary look at or, or attitude about building their own um, technology. And, and when you when you outsource those bits of technology, you, you lose control of your business real fast. Yeah, I'm going to, we'll get into that a little bit more um, in a second. I want to talk, I went to your um, conference that you had in Orlando uh, several months ago, and you and the mm-hmm. CEO, Dan Duffy, both mentioned your goal through this market shift is to gain market share. And as a transaction fee company, you would, I think you'd said you predicted a drop in transaction sides, a 15% drop in the coming year. I'm pretty sure that's what you said, which of course means payouts to the agents, but not necessarily the company. And you both said, we don't care about that. We're, we, our goal through this is to gain market share. So talk to me a little bit about that growth strategy. The ebbs and flows, the peaks and valleys of the real estate business have been around for a very long time. Uh, we're in it for the long haul, and these temporal shifts in the market, market, they happen in every business. They certainly happen in real estate. Um, when we we started this process, we were already, uh, well, three years ago when we started, I think we did our first merger of uh, Charles Ruttenberg in Fort Lauderdale. We knew that the market was at the end of a protracted expansion period, um, but it, it really doesn't matter. Um, what matters is that we we get the right clay on the table, that we create a transaction structure that rewards owners um, for what they've built. That and in the transaction structure, it also takes care of uh, things like market risk. But I think the genius in the way we put these things together is that we give people the opportunity for upside, and we protect them against the downside. Uh, that's why our growth continues, and it will continue. In fact, it'll probably accelerate greatly through any kind of a protracted down period. 
I think year to date nationally, I think NAR just said that their units are down 15%. That is what we predicted at the beginning of the year. Of course, we've got the last five months of the year to figure out. We don't know where that's going, but 15% unit drop actually makes our business model um, more attractive to agents and to brokerages trying to figure out how to compete successfully. So, and think about it this way, if there are fewer units in the marketplace, then every unit becomes more important to the agent. If we have a technology platform and a brokerage management platform that enables our broker network to succeed without having to have them go out and and piece together all, all these technology feature and functionality, then not only are we helping the agent because of our low cost, but also because we're helping the broker when they can provide that compensation plan and that then uh, that compensation plan and that tool set at the at the the uh, costs that are involved in our our network, you know, it helps us grow. And so as the market tightens, to your point, I think we grow we grow share. We've done it for the last three years. Of course, that's been in a boom market. And ironically, in the booming market that we've had, I think it's actually harder to grow because people are kind of like, hey, it's not broke. I'm not going to fix it. Well, right now, people are looking looking to the next 12 to 24 months. And I think what we hear and who we talk to, they're looking for what can I do to insulate my business from this downside that's in the market that we're in now. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I want to go back to your tech platform because you did um, have some, uh, I think, venture capital. Um, you know, you had an infusion of money to be able to start that tech platform before you decided to scale the business. Um, and you did build it from scratch. And I can't remember. There was one third party vendor. Was it DocuSign or DotLoop? I'm not sure. A third party vendor that you're probably thinking of was CoreLogic. OK, maybe that's what it is. So talk to yeah. me about it's called Bullseye. And, um, yep, so, that's the that's the cloud-based technology platform that I, I just was referencing. It's proprietary. It's built by us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, our company really has a shared DNA of real estate brokerage and operations as well as as well as it being a, a, a true technology company. A lot of companies that we see that declare themselves a technology company, when you look at their organizational structure or how they're spending money, you quickly realize that they're not a technology company. They're they're a real estate brokerage with a, a technology focus. But how do they go about getting those tools and services into their company and their operating platform? They go out and buy them. That's not a technology company. Um, and we really have a shared DNA. We're both technology company and a real estate brokerage, and we have we have pretty high quality DNA in both of those businesses. And again, like I said, that's, that turns out to be a key strategic and sustainable strategic competitive advantage. Yeah. I mean, I know Dan has a deep um, industry background in technology, which is what um, kind of brought that to the forefront. So I know that agent adoption is always a struggle. And I, I've also seen companies like Remax, where they've decided to move away from their purchased um, product, Bouge to go to a third party vendor. Um, so I wanna know like what lessons have you learned through the process of building your platform and what differentiates it from others? Why, why, um, you know, why is that working for you compared to, you know, others who have do- decided to move away from that? Um, and, and I don't really mean 
anything, you know, against the companies that have moved away from it. I'm really just looking for how you made that decision and and moving forward, why that works best for you. Well, I think the I think the in the long run, if you just think about a business's competitive advantage comes from differentiation. If you forego your proprietary, the development of proprietary processes and technology platform, as an example, um, in the real estate business, when technology platform, whether it's mo- mobile devices that have your your office sit all the tools and services of your office sitting on your phone, or a laptop, if you if you abandon the proprietary concept, then you you in, in essence abandon the differentiation of your company one to another. And by definition, a non-differentiated product or service is a commodity. And anybody who's, who understands basic businesses, commodities are bought and sold. That is a non-differentiated product or service are bought and sold on one dimension, price. And, and so if you fail to differentiate now, these third party companies that want to sell technology into real estate as a 1.5 million um, member group, of course, they'll say we can sell to you or we can sell to the brokerage down the street from you. And you guys, because you'll implement our stuff better, you'll have differentiation. But they say that to every single brokerage they talk to. So um, on level, if, if, that product is distributed widely across the marketplace, then you have and, and implemented widely across the marketplace, then you're not, you're not differentiating your organization. You just can't. It's, a, it's definitional. Um, a commodity is bought and sold on price. And by trading out your technology tools, services, and work platform, your marketing services, because they're deeply embedded in a technology platform, you trade that out for a store-bought, even slightly customized uh, set of tools and services, you, you've turned your company into a commodity in the agent size. And then you, then it comes down to a race to the bottom. So we, you know, early on said, nope, we're not going to do that. Um, to be totally honest with you, a lot of the technology that, that's out there is heralded as leading edge and it's, it's pretty basic stuff. You just have to have the DNA and you have to have the expertise to be able to, and you have to have the willingness to invest because, there's a lot of money that went into our platform in the early, early, um, early 10 years. And, you know, you have to have the ability and the willingness to take a risk and invest that money and then iterate and reiterate the technology platform so that you stay current with what agents want and need to succeed. So strategically, differentiation doesn't come from buying third party property or third party products. Now, there is a caveat in this. There are certain ubiquitous, fully developed platforms that you'd be absolutely, you know, kind of out of your mind to redevelop. And the simple example that I use is if somebody came to me and said, hey, we need a spreadsheet. And I went to Dave Dickey and I said, hey, Dave, would you build us a spreadsheet program? He'd look at me like we were nuts, like I was crazy. Oh, Rick, for 110 bucks or, or less, you can buy the most most invested in, most ubiquitous piece of technology. Go get an Excel and have at it. So there are certain ty- times when product, certain products or services can be bolted onto our chassis, and and that makes a whole lot lot of sense. Everybody understands how to use them, so the training curve is flat. But there are core operations that 
if you don't have proprietary, if you don't have proprietarily embedded in your organization and the ability to iterate and reiterate, you're not going to succeed and you're going to be a, you're going to be a commodity. You know, recently there's been some news about companies, like you said, that have abandoned their technology platform for, for buying third party software. And basically they've said, we give up. We're not going to try to differentiate those services to our agents. And what about like agent adoption? What are you doing to encourage agent adoption um, throughout? And, you know, especially with the with newer companies that you're bringing on in that. How are you encouraging that? How are you having the leaders of those companies encourage that? Um, well, first of all, you know, we don't do a mandatory adoption. That's just not that's just not what you can do in the real estate business. And, and but I, I'd also say that it has less to do with what everybody says. Hey, they're independent contractors. You can't mandate. Well, you can't mandate successfully in 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 all, all of humanity. You know, you can't mandate that someone take a training program. If they're an employee versus an independent contractor, you can mandate that they sit in the seat, but you can't mandate that they'll learn and apply. Same thing is 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 prevalent with um, technology. So the first thing is we never. We don't allow the thinking to happen in our meetings that we can paint all of our agents with a single brush. Agents in in um, real estate agents, uh, in in my experience, um, have widely and maybe you can say wildly varying appetites and aptitudes with technology. And if an agent's in the final quartile of their their real estate career, so they're kind of thinking and heading for the career finish line, um, they they very seldom want to reinvent their business, reinvent their business practices to get to that finish line. They've earned the right to work on a referral basis, and it, and if, if we build technology that is financially dependent um, on you know, 60, 70, 80% of our agents adopting it, then, you know, that's a recipe for failure. And I think too many companies, both technology providers and real estate brokerages, miss the point that you that all agents don't have an appetite or the ability and really don't want to reinvent their business um, to finish it out by relearning all of those new tools and services. If you build your expectations and define success on too high of a capture rate or too high of a take-up rate with agents using your tools, then I think you you missed a basic planning, a step in the planning process. And I see that happen a lot. So, you know, it's very common in our business to say, you know, if I build a technology service and I have 20 to 30% adoption, that means eight or seven or eight out of 10 don't use the technology. Um, most people will not start their their journey down this path. Most brokerages won't, or technology leaders within brokerages will not start down the path um, with the right expectation. And I think that's how sometimes um, that's that's how sometimes this frustration develops about quote agent adoption. So we build our technology as value added services. We spend a good bit of time and energy training and explaining the benefits and then the take up rates are what they are. Um, but we don't, we don't start the process either in the design or financial performance of a given tool or services uh, or tool or service. We don't start with the, from the perspective of that we're going to have 40 or 50 or 80% of our agents taking up the tool. 
you know, and, 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 you know, they'll give you a reality report after you've fully communicated it internally, after you've fully given the opportunities for training, you know, it's, um, it's, it becomes very obvious what, what their appetite for that, for that tool is. We had, we had one of the companies we purchased bought a very popular third party piece of software and thought that it was going to be, um, thought that it was going to be the, um, you know, kind of the be all end all. And they, they had done that prior to us getting involved and, and they worked real hard, spent a lot of time and energy, invested their own money to uh, train and educate their agents, run hands on, hand over hand training. And at, at the end of two years, they were sitting at about 8% adoption. And this is an organization that will take the podium every chance they can and tell people that they're going to get 40, 50, 60% adoption. So I have plenty of experiences along this track and, and starting with a, a un, uncharacter, uh, unrealistically high expectation for agent adoption is just a, especially if that's what your performer, your financial performer for return of investment is built on. You're just headed in the wrong direction. You're going to be disappointed. So, that, so I have a question about that. So if you're not building it for agent adoption, and most the majority of agents aren't using it. What are you building it for, and is it even necessary to build it? It's a great it's a great question, um, and it's classic make or buy strategy. So I think the 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 system as it's being built has to be built with the idea that it has to have tremendous flexibility. So as that product evolves, um, you're listening to your audience, your agents say, "I like this, but I'd like it if it did that." When you can, when you've built on the right platform, you can adapt the technology to take in these these fragmented pieces or this these disparate uh, groups of agents who want this but not that. And if the platform like ours is, is a cloud-based technology um, that allows us to be incredibly flexible and very um, uh, very customizable to the user, so as a result. If they want this, but they don't want that, and you can provide that over time and evolve. And I use the phrase iterate and reiterate a lot, Tracy. And if you iterate and reiterate, so you can layer on what each of your agent segments want and need, now you can get the adoption up over time. But so many times when companies, and your question is really a good question. So many times when companies buy an off-the-shelf product and try to customize it, they find that that customization is nearly impossible down to their brokerage level because this company is selling into 1.5 million agents nationally. And it's just, uh, it's just a hair pull to get them to customize for what your needs are, let alone the individual needs of the agent groups within your company. I hope, I hope, I know that's com it's complex, but if you built on the right technology platform, then you can iterate and reiterate fast, low cost, and provide uh, an evolution of the product offering so that individual groups of agents in your organization will be drawn in and will find value in, in what you're offering. And that's how that's the long-term approach that we've taken. So you're saying so, basically that it's uh, you you'll get higher adoption of certain sections of your technology, and that's what's important. Not necessarily high adoption rates for the entire. Every every component of your technology. 
Exactly. And and the, the if the cost structure is low enough, you can afford to do that. And our cost structure is is low enough to be able to do that. Okay. Great. Yeah. So so let's be real tangible. If if a product is launched with ten features or ten functionalities, and some of our agents take it up because it has these three, and some for these three, and then there's a different two that somebody wants. As long as the cost doesn't uh, exceed the value of the, those segments of the feature functionality, then you're then you're growing adoption. And isn't to, to me that's just so basic. It's isn't that what it's really all about? Pleasing your customer. And so many times we say, hey, customer, here's what you want. And they go, no, not really. I really don't need that. I need only this. Okay, great. You can have that. Our system is set up. Our bullseye is set up so that they can take advantage of those two or those three or those five or those eight functionalities. Um, and whether they're taking out, they're, they're using two or eight, it's it's not cost prohibitive for us, and um, it's a super high value for our agents and brokers. Okay, that's really it's really interesting that you know just I think that really it's been a struggle for brokerages overall, and I've I've seen the evolution from you know third going with third party vendors to deciding to bring it in house and build it, and then now I'm seeing it go back to third party vendors because it's so difficult. I mean. Um, you know, Compass, they, I think Robert said they have a thousand person development team working on pulling all of the products that they purchase together into one platform. And again, I mentioned Remax deciding to move away from their proprietary to a third party vendor. Um, so it is really just, it's, it's just a struggle to figure out the right way. And, and I think that sometimes... Yeah. The right way for you isn't the right way for them, you know, depending on their circumstances. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can you can go to Yahoo.com and you can you can look up these trading symbols uh, and see how that those kinds of investments are working out. And I, I want to be careful. I'm not talking about one one individual company or the other, but, you know, um, a thousand developers on staff. So that you can differentiate and cost recover over that small audience of your agents, mathematically it doesn't work. And and I think um, the mounting losses quarter over quarter, year over year, that these companies are showing never getting the profitability or proving out that that's a failed strategy. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, a lot of them are moving to a different strategy at this point. So, so yeah. Now, I want to talk about just the real estate industry in general. Obviously, you know, we go through ups and downs and there's a lot of innovation that happens a lot of times in the down market. So where do you see the most opportunity for brokers and agents um, in the next year? I think to, to I think there's been some efforts to for third party companies to get themselves between um, a brokerage or agents and their customers. And I think the opportunity with some of the, you know, as as those third party uh, interveners have struggled now with their business models, mounting losses, as I said before, I think the opportunity, the biggest opportunity right now is for agents and brokerages to get closer to their customers and to really deepen their relationships with the localized information that, that they and they alone possess. Um, now, they possess it in a quality and quantity is far greater than third-party um, interveners 
can deliver. And so I think one of the huge opportunities for agents is to get closer to their their consumers, their past, present, future customers, sometimes called sphere of influence, get closer to them, really offer high quality information about how to interpret the marketplace um, and and uh, deepen their deepen their uh, customer for life strategies. That's that's one for brokerages. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to now look and, and I think now that you've, you know, we've just been through three, three years of tremendous growth in the real estate business. I think it's time out of need and just it's a great time to do it. Take a breath. Look at your business model. See if the model that you're running is still competitive in the marketplace or see if it needs to evolve to something different. And as you know, Tracy, I spent most of my career in traditional real estate. And our job was to build a giant tool chest that set, sits behind the agent, and hopefully they'll be willing to pay us 30 40 50% commissions. Well, over time, the, um, the way these offerings have become uh, widespread, especially technology-based um, applications, are so, they're so mature and they're, and they're easier to use and the costs have come down. Now that value proposition has been largely destroyed. So um, you have to make sure that you're differentiating your your business on on uh, on those dimensions that it can sustain that differentiation. And if you're a broker today, it's a brilliant time to talk about reinventing your business model. And honestly, that's why our flight pattern is full. That's why we're that's why we're talking to so many people and having so much success. That and we. We really approach these transactions from the long haul and make sure that someone who has built a company for 10, 15, 30 years, and we've had everything in between, some, someone who's in that state of development and has spent that much time and energy pouring themselves into their business, we truly get the clay, the negotiation clay on the table and together craft something that's going to help them get where the, to where they want to be financially and from um, you know their involvement in the business. And that opportunity is huge right now. Get helping people get what they want at this point in their brokerage history and career. And um, if you really come at it that way, instead of a win-lose negotiation, we have a mantra when we when when we operate as we operate, and it's it says this that none of us are as smart or as strong as all of us. Mm-hmm. And and we principally do not believe that we are smarter than the person who created the business. So as an example, we don't go in and rip the brand off. We run a house of brands. We don't go in and alter all the commission plans. I mean, when the, you know, agents don't want and need that, um, sometimes, you know, if, if the brokerage doesn't have a competitive compensation plan, there are increases to agent compensation plans, but we don't go in and alter it. We don't go in and play with fees. And the other thing is preserve the identity, preserve the leadership, at least through the transition. But most all of ours have been well beyond that. And make sure the agents know they're on solid ground compensation wise. Um, and then you get to be able to sit on this kind of a call and say we have zero breakage in the operations that we've we brought into our company. Yeah, I think that's uh, where the opportunity is. Yeah, zero breakage is not, you know, doesn't seem realistic, but, uh, you know, it seems like, I don't know, most companies have a little bit. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, Tracy, I agree with your statement and our facts, facts are uh, zero breakage. Yeah, so that's, that's great. Pretty, that's cool to be able to say. Yeah. You know, here's one other thing in terms of the merger and acquisition business. When you know you're going to have breakage and you say, well, guess what? We have to factor in 15% of the business isn't going to flow through, which was said from stage not long ago from one of the large would-be acquirers. When we, you have to factor in 5 10 12% breakage or destruction of value of the company just because of the transaction, then you can afford to pay them a whole lot less. That's a lot of money. Remember, most real estate companies are bought on a multiple of earnings. Call it three to six. Yeah. Um, well, if for every dollar you break, that that costs the seller of that company five times that dollar. Mm -hmm. Then you're destroying tremendous value because you don't have the integration uh, skills post transaction. So it's a key differentiator for us and a historical fact that we don't break what we bought. Yeah. And therefore, valua valuations can be more lucrative. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, my last question is just what's next for United? <laughs> An accelerated version of what we've been doing. Um, um, I think uh, for, for me personally, we're still we're still looking to find the very best people to add to the team. So we've got um, we've got some positions that I'm working on filling. And um, in the spirit of that comment I made before, none of us are as smart or as strong as all of us. One of the things that nobody seems to talk about, everybody loves to talk about balance sheets and P&Ls, but they don't, they don't really spend much time um, talking about the talent pool that's when you have a, a, when you're acquisitive in nature as a company, and we are acquisitive, um, you, you end up bringing in great leaders. And I could I could name them all over the country with these the acquisitions that we've done, um, but uh, I won't do that for fear of leaving somebody out. But these are talented people that, when they come passionate to United Real Estate and problem solve and opportunity create for us, then that's uh, so optimizing that talent pool and continue, continuing to bring uh, more talented people into the company as we you know we need it. We we went, as you said, from the 139th to the eighth largest real estate company in the country. And and in doing that, you, you have to make sure you have the right people on board. And so that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Rick, thanks so much for joining the Real Trending Podcast. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I appreciate it. Likewise, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Real Trending. If you haven't already, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. And we will see you next week with more news and insights.